You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Proteum Machining, and this week I am happy to welcome Keaton Friedman. Welcome, Keaton. Yeah, thank you for having me, Dylan. My pleasure. So for those who don't know who you are and what, what you do, what are all the details? Yeah, so I, I own a company called Swift Universal Optical Systems. We've been in business for seven years now. We're located in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and we, we offer a kind of cradle to grave design through manufacturing service to our customers. So everything from the iterative design process, whether it's starting with a napkin sketcher, a requirements document all the way through to prototyping and, and eventually full rate production. Awesome. Well, before we get into your backstory, what kind of machinery do you guys operate? Yeah, so we're, we're a small shop. So we have a Haas VF2, just standard three axis mill, an LB3000 MYW EX2, just a you know standard six axis slave, an Akuma MU6300, and a Kern Micro HD with an Aurora ERC80 on it. Awesome. Yeah. For a small business, that's not normal small business attire. But <laughs> let's get into your backstory and talk about how you got to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I started the business in college. Believe it or not, I was actually a history major up at Appalachian State, which is kind of in the the northwest corner of North Carolina in the in the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, you know, I, I started like I think a lot of people did, being introduced to a Bridgeport in a in a family friend's shop, and didn't realize that it was necessarily a passion of mine at the time. But I think throughout you know the rest of my high school years and, and through college, it was something I kept returning to in, in some fashion or another. My, I grew up, my, my parents had a family business, you know, they owned an art gallery. And so I think in some ways I was kind of surrounded by design and, and became passionate about that, but also like taking my hands dirty and, and having more of the, the mechanical side of things. And so, you know, to some extent or another, it kind of became the natural path. And I, I started designing my own products in college and eventually had this opportunity to kind of show them to somebody who would be a, a potential customer and in showing them that design, they said, man, this is, this is just an awful idea. You know, I've worked on this for like <laughs> probably two or three years of my life. And, you know, all through college, I was trying to design this product. And I finally, you know, bought a 3D printer, made a prototype and showed it to him. And it just, it was devastating. But he said, you know, hey, if you can draw, you know, in SolidWorks, can you, can you do other things? And so, uh, so where did you get SolidWorks? Like, how did that, you know, as a history major, and I know you have access to, you know, student SDKs and stuff, but like, where did that even come from that you were like, oh yeah, let me get a CAD software and learn it? You know, if originally it wasn't even that, I, I was really fortunate. The childhood friend of mine who now actually works for us, his father had a machine shop and he took the right path and went, you know, got into a mechanical engineering program. And so I had all these ideas and so I would take them to him and I'd give him the napkin sketches and I would just watch him on SolidWorks and try to, you know, understand what he was doing and realized kind of really early on that I needed to get myself a C and teach myself the software. So that, that was really the origin of it. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense. So you yeah. printed this, this prototype and, and got your, your hopes dashed. Where did you go from there? Yeah. So thankfully that person had a lot of other ideas. And so I started just kind of manifesting his, his creation. So he would give me his napkin sketches and I would draw them out in SolidWorks and 3d print prototypes and he would test them. And then you know, eventually he said, Hey, can I, can I buy metal versions of this? And I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, I didn't have an LLC. I didn't have anything prepared. And so I kind of frantically went off and got all of my paperwork together and sent the first drawings out to a job shop locally in Raleigh. And 
had all of that kind of experience of never having outsourced parts before, never having any formal training in producing drawings or anything like that. And, you know, walking through that process of having parts made was, uh, was ripe with errors and certainly something that I realized as soon as we got the first parts back that I needed to bring that skill set in house somehow. I needed to have some agency over that process. So then what were your first steps towards getting that in house? Yeah. So, you know, it was getting onto YouTube and figuring out, you know, I was going into these job shops when I was shopping around and seeing the kinds of equipment they had, and it was mostly Haas. They immediately, you know, Haas has that transparent pricing and went online and realized, you know, okay, I can't afford this. And so what is the alternative option? And I stumbling through YouTube, found people like John Saunders and John Grimsmo and saw these Tormach machines and thought, well, this is this isn't a price point that I can afford. And so believe it or not, the first machine that I, I started with, I took all of the profits from the first contract that I got and put them into a Series 3 PNC 1100 uh, at The time was running Mach 3 and didn't work. And, and that was really the, the beginning of it. You know, I had, was really grateful uh, to have some family friends uh, that ran a big printing company offer me some space in their building. And so I framed out this little 16 by 16 foot shop with a buddy of mine on a weekend. Uh, on a long weekend from school and put the machine in and framed the building up around it and had this little, little shop in Raleigh. And, uh, so then for the last year or so of college, I organized all my classes so that I, I started on Tuesday morning and I finished on Thursday night. And so Thursday night, my last class ended at eight. I drive the three hours home, uh, come into the shop, then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, and then leave really early on Tuesday morning to go back to school. And so for that first six months or so, it was just getting the machine fixed. You know, there were a lot of controller issues and all sorts of little things that had to get, that get repaired. And so, you know, I remember at the time that that machine felt so daunting, you know, I didn't, because I didn't have any formal training, I didn't understand the basic concepts and, you know, it was really sitting down with YouTube and, you know, watching three seconds, pausing it, doing exactly what they did, unpausing it, you know, it, it was that process until the concept started making sense. You know, I bought some books, but a lot of it was really just YouTube. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, I'm just thinking like timeline wise. So in seven years, you've turned a, a PNC into a current. Yeah. We didn't get, you know, the first, <laughs> when you say it like that, I suppose. Yeah. We, we didn't get the first, I got the Hawes, the VF2 in May of 2019. So, you know, the business has really, been on a pretty aggressive trajectory since then, but it, it all comes back to the Tormach, believe it or not. So what was growing the business like then at that point? Like when did you move out of that 16 by 16? What made you get the Haas? You know, how, how do you, how did you grow a small business with a Tormach? You know, I think I, I chased down what I think everyone does at the beginning. You know, I chased down whatever was hot at the time and you know, things like, you know, the, the very first part that I ever made was a fidget spinner. Um, and then I made giant Legos and I made coasters and necklaces and I'm mean, just anything that somebody would pay me for. But that whole time, none of that was, was paying the bills, you know, still living with my folks, you know, barely on my feet and those early connections selling product to, you know, larger companies and larger organizations, you know, I started having the ability to create prototypes for them. And so they continued to come to me with ideas and eventually that opened the door into the defense world, into supporting, you know, Fort Bragg and, and the military 
down here. And so I think a lot of it just came down to people. It was, you know, I was honing my manufacturing skills through making these simple parts until a point where I was presented with a really challenging part to make that was, you know, 25 inches long on a machine that had, you know, 15 inches of X travel. And, you know, it, it had, I think it was eight operations to complete it. And it had some really tight tolerances on it. And I realized in that moment that this was a watershed part that I needed to just put everything I could into that, into that part and get it done as quickly as I could. And it's that single part that really opened the door to who our customers are today, because, um, the, 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 the result of that part was the ability to buy a Hawes. It was enough volume came out of it to justify that. So, I mean, as you said, you were on a, or you have been on a crazy trajectory then since then. So how did that all scale? Because you've also been through a couple Akumas, right? Before you landed on the one you currently have. Yeah. So, you know, we got the Hawes and as soon as we started making some of these parts, we started being introduced to other problems that our customers had. And, you know, it's kind of as soon as you get foot into the door, really started to flow from there. And so um, we got introduced, again, as a small company, people aren't willing to take a big chance on you. And the government has something called SIBR, which is the Small Business Innovation Research Grants. And so it's a, a mechanism to give small companies in the U.S., a, f- a phased award that allows them to develop novel product ideas that have a low likelihood of success. And so the government used that as a vehicle for us to grow. So like I said, they're, they're multi-phase. And so you start off with you know a relatively small amount of funding to develop a white paper. And if they like the concept that you have, then they'll invest in the actual prototyping and development, the research and development manifest it. And you know, that's really when the business started to change. You know, through May, I was of 2019, I was just, it was a one person company. It was just me. And I realized early on that we needed to hire compliance, that I I needed somebody to, you know, help support the things that I'm, I'm not good at. You know, I'm not good at the necessarily the organization and, and, and that side of the business. And so I knew that that was where I needed to start in terms of onboarding. And we rode through for the next six months or so with just myself and our compliance officer. So. Tell me about the the SBIR though. Like, how did you did your customer bring this to you and say we want to help sponsor this, sponsor you with this? Like, how does that process work? Because I I've, I've heard of them, but I didn't know quite kind of how the whole process works. Yeah, so they're they're a bit mysterious to everyone, I think, even within the government. And so, you know, we had developed this kind of had some success with these small runs of of product for them and. In learning about some of these other problems that they had, we proposed a, a technical solution to one of them. And they liked our technical proposal and said, hey, can you do this for, for X amount of money? And, you know, it was more money than we had made the previous year. And I, I said, you know, wanted to say yes immediately. And I talked to some of my mentors and I said, look, you're never going to grow as a company with, with that amount of investment, you know, ask for more. And so I asked for a lot more money. And they didn't have it. And they said, well, you know what? We'll, we'll get back in touch with you. And I think it was that moment where they said, look, you know, it's a small company. It's a little bit too much risk uh, to put our own money in play here. And that is kind of the process where they discovered Sibber. And Sibber is really, you know, it, it, I think we're a success story of that program, which is what are kind of in their origins, really high risk endeavors. But if you find the right people, they can, you know, build successful companies. And totally. so that- that that was totally the origin of that. Okay. And, and then, so you mentioned that you had to create a white paper. 
did you have advisors on that? Like, how did you come to write a white paper that was accepted through that program? Because I imagine similar like patents and things like that, there's a lot of ways to structure those correctly. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, the Cibber program, part of the reason it's successful is they give you wonderful templates because the people receiving these awards are new to this space. They don't know how to write you know, contracts, et cetera. And so they gave us a really powerful template to be able to use that, you know, listed out all the things that we needed to answer. And, you know, even for years after that, we still used, we would, we would go back to that template to understand, you know, what our customer was looking for. Very cool. So you got this, you had a compliance officer. What made you think compliance officer? Like did, are you like, okay, I need to get a, you know, ERP. I need to get ITAR and all these compliances. And that's what led you to it. Cause I feel like that's not, many people's first hire? You know, I think it came down to where the majority of my time was going. So I was spending most of my time preparing these proposals, meeting all of the contractual and and legal obligations of the contracts, and not actually having time to design or, or machine. And so it was kind of an obvious direction that I think I saw the writing on the wall, which was that, you know, if we got a phase two award, we were going to need to hire a whole bunch of people. And to do that, we were going to need HR, we were going to need payroll, we were going to need 401ks and health insurance. And I didn't, looking ahead, see the ability to do that on my own without somebody who had experience in it. And, you know, as, as has been the case in our business, many, on many occasions, we have had our most successful hires from within our social circle. And so, you know, our first hire was somebody that I knew personally and I knew had experience and I knew could handle this. And so it just made sense. Okay. So you hired her, you got this first round. Where did it go from there? You know, this VF2 to what was next? Yeah. So um, again, that next six months kind of through the fall of that year was really just writing this white paper and, you know, we were receiving good feedback from our customer. And so I realized through the fall of that year, as we were completing the white paper that we were going to need design capacity. And I remember telling my dad, I, I was explaining this person that I needed, you know, I needed a mechanical engineer. I knew I needed somebody that knew SolidWorks. And, you know, my dad said, well, why don't you hire, you know, your childhood friend that, that helped kick this off. And I, I thought to myself, well, he would never work for work for me. And he says, well, you know, just ask. And so it was the day after Christmas of 2019 that I invited him down to our shop and kind of showed him what I was doing and asked him if he wanted to come work for us. And I think, you know, it was, it was a perfect timing in both of our lives. And, you know, he agreed to come work for us. And that was, that was the start of the company really beginning. So at this point, were you still job shopping as well? Or was there enough money in this phase one, phase two, that this was all you were doing? This was pretty much all we were doing. We had a couple of small manufacturing projects going on on the side, but most of it was just the funding from the Sibbers was what was keeping us afloat. And, you know, we had really low overhead. I think maintaining that, some of that has been luck in, but, you know, I think listening to your story of kind of maintaining your day job through those first couple of years is, is really critical. And while we weren't, you know, I didn't have a day job outside of this. I was blessed through luck with, you know, low cost rent, good facilities and, and, and good people. That's excellent. Yeah, I imagine that being able to focus on something like that really helped you kind of narrow your company's focus, like really niche, know what your niche is and and kind of follow through with that and tailor your business to it. 
Yeah, you know, th there were multiple servers at the beginning that we were pursuing, and some were more on the mechanical side, and, and some were more software oriented. And, you know, it was an early decision that I'm very thankful that we made, which was deciding what kind of company we wanted to be and leaning into that. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important with any business is learning that that's something you need to do and then really focusing on it. So yeah, absolutely. Where did you go from this Haas? Like, what was your next purchase and why did you make it? Yeah, so I realized in probably September, October of 2019 that we needed a five axis machine, that the parts that we were designing just we weren't going to be able to complete on a three axis. And I had gone to IMTS in 2018, and you know the only company that would talk to me was Kuma. You know, obviously Haas was open, uh, but I knew that we needed something a little bit more accurate than the UMC line offered. And everyone else, you know, they talked to us, but they weren't they weren't showing any interest. And Akuma also has its headquarters, its North American headquarters here in Charlotte. And so it was kind of an obvious choice. And so we brought on the first five axis machine in October of 2019. And that was a Akuma M460V 5AX. And how did you like that machine? Because we've talked a little bit about that through DM and some of the clearance issues that machine pre presents. Yeah, you know, I was the extent of my five axis knowledge was that I knew clearance was an issue. And in looking at machines like the DMU 50 was, was the other machine we were looking at. I thought, man, this thing has a huge table. Our parts are, you know, under 50 millimeters cubed. It's going to be really hard to get there. And kind of ironically, I ended up picking a machine that has some really challenging clearance issues because as the 460 gets towards the bottom of its Z stroke, Z stroke, the linear rails are hanging behind the spindle and you end up needing to be kind of seven or eight inches off the table before you can get to center line with a, you know, a three and a half, four inch long tool. So that, that was a bit of a learning curve. And I realized this kind of after we had bought it and went into a lot of shrink fit, you know, longer six inch gauge line tools, but you know, cap 40, even big plus really struggles past four or five inches of stick out. And so very accurate machine, wonderful control, but you know, certainly it took a lot of fixture work to figure out how to get get the tool to the part totally yeah because yeah it's, it's the linear rails and then there's also that giant box hanging off the, the trunnion every time i've seen that in videos i'm like oh that just scares me like the the clearance is a90 or yeah just seems insane yeah and you know at the time you know i i didn't get camplete until we bought that machine and in hindsight you know i should have gotten camplete earlier you know i think fusion now having some machine simulation ability really changes things for folks but you know had i had parts had i been able to see that simulation earlier i would have i would have been able to steer us around that problem um, <laughs> but it certainly wasn't self-evident in looking at i'm sure you've looked at the machine documentation that you get and those the prints are a little bit hard to interpret sometimes oh for sure yeah uh, well this actually might be a good place to do a little tangent riley gilman asked what software do you use so have you changed what cam you're using I assume you're still on SolidWorks. You know, what's the suite that you guys use? Yeah, so it's a mix between Mastercam and Fusion. You know, I, I cut my teeth on Fusion, but as soon as we got into ITAR work, had to make the transition. You know, Mastercam was really similar to our first machine purchase, right? It was because there was so much documentation behind it in terms of YouTube videos and just a much larger user base. So certainly not something that, you know, we we get really good capability out of Mastercam. I might have made a different decision had I gotten to start over again. But beyond that, 
we've always had Camplete between our, our CAD cam and our machine. Um, so everything in five axis, we, we post-process through Camplete. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. It, it's, it seems like it's a kind of a deal when you consider just the cost of post-processors for most cam systems. I mean, the fact that you get a dialed pro post alongside with machine sim, it, it seems like a kind of a no brainer, even with its pitfalls in, in setup. Yeah. You know, I think the other thing, and this is a recurring theme in, in this whole industry is that it really comes down to people and, you know, the folks at Camplete are really wonderful between Ivan and Danish in being able to support us in getting our posts to do exactly what we want. And, you know, at the time I think Camplete was 12 or $15,000. And so the fact that you can get it now for, you know, a subscription through Autodesk, I think it's a no brainer for anybody getting into five access for the first time. Totally. So back to the story, you had this 460V 5-axis, you know, was what was the trajectory from there? Were you hiring more people, acquiring more machinery? What did your needs end up being? Yeah, so we brought on our first 5-axis machinists later into 2020 at the start of the year. And, you know, that was a really tremendous opportunity for me to kind of side seat with a guy who had been doing this for 20 years. And, you know, really open my eyes to what's possible in terms of five axis and open my eyes in terms of what's possible when it comes to work holding and fixturing. And so we brought him on. And then later that year, we were awarded the phase two and we brought on three full-time mechanical engineers. So, you know, the, the early years of the business, we were very heavy on the engineering side and very light on the manufacturing side. You know, I was still, most of my time was spent programming and running machines, honestly, until maybe just a year ago. That's amazing. I mean, I feel like that is the opposite story from most people. You know, most people, their first hires are to get them out of the machines. And it seems like your hires were engineers and, and compliance, which is very interesting. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that has made us successful is that we have a really good fusion between our engineers and manufacturing folks. And so, you know, in those early years, I was dabbling in both. So I knew exactly what was going on on the design side, and I was the one actually having to make the parts. And it really closed the loop on the DFM problem that I think I'm sure everyone who has, has run other people's parts has suffered from. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. And so being able to be involved in the design process and teach our engineers about how I was selecting tooling, you know, why I needed faces in certain places to establish datums, et cetera, was just invaluable. So from the beginning, we were making parts that were designed for manufacturer, and that was just invaluable. So let's talk a little bit about hiring before we continue. What have you learned in hiring? Because that, that's something that Brad and I are looking at now. I, you know, I think that we we're both a little hesitant to hire. We've both worked with a lot of machinists in town and, you know, a lot of them we can't trust our machines to. So like what things have you learned about asking the right questions or bringing people on that you can trust with your machinery and with your business in general? Yeah, I think you struck on on the the exact same concern that I had when I was onboarding, which is how do I hand off this, you know, quarter of a million, $300,000 machine to somebody that I don't know? And, you know, am I prepared to suffer the consequences when things go wrong? And so you know, for me at the beginning, you know, we're very thorough in our interviewing process, you know, in terms of calling references and, and actually having our, our manufacturing folks process parts for us. So I'll, I'll give them parts that I've machined in the past where I know the correct methods. I know the pitfalls. I know the challenging features and I'll, I'll listen to how they process that part. 
So that's been really helpful. Uh, it also, I think, just comes down to intuition. I think it's something that you, at some point, just have to take the leap. Uh, you know, we tell our people here that we have kind of a zero tolerance for crashing. So, you know, none of our machines have, have even been bumped outside of me rubbing a college truck on the lathe, which we don't need to talk about. But uh, <laughs> beyond that, you know, our machines have never even, you know, a holder has never even made contact with material. And I think that isn't entirely luck. It's, I think it's starting at the hiring process by saying, you know, I'm only going to bring in intelligent, hardworking, diligent people. So they have to meet this minimum threshold. You then have to pay them enough that they care and that they're invested uh, and that they're not at work worrying about how they're going to pay their bills or if they have enough money to get new tires for their car or anything like that. And then you have to set the standard and kind of step back. And, you know, it really comes down to process after that. You have a robust enough system that that it can tolerate the kind of human mistakes that are inevitable. And, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to mistakes, crashes are never the result of a single failure, right? There's There's half a dozen things that had to go wrong for that crash to happen. And so even if you write an offset incorrectly, if you're running the machine in single block, if you're coming down at 2%, you're probably not going to hit. Right. And so you had to fail at a whole number of things in order for that bad event to happen. And so I, I think it comes down to people, but then a lot of process behind them. And so I, as kind of the, the financial of having the financial responsibility of the machines crashing, I had developed really robust processes to not bump our machines. And so I had a system to put our people into. And okay. I think that's yeah. really what made the difference. That's great. What can you share about? preventing crashes then that you know listeners could could learn from yeah it's a tough one i think it's it's making sure that the digital world and the physical world are aligned right so making sure that everything is in alignment between ham and the control so you know making sure that our models are placed correctly that we're doing our fixtures are placed correctly our tools are modeled correctly and then before running that program auditing all of those things so you know, I, I don't commit a lot to memory. We print out a lot of setup sheets. We print out a lot of Excel documents where we confirm the right tools are loaded, the right stick out is in the holder, the right holder is being used. And then it's leaning on software. So things like Camplete to be another layer of defense. Um, you know, all post-processors are challenging at the beginning of, you know, being suspicious that they're going to work properly. We've had a lot of in every machine that we've ever had, we've had issues at the beginning with the post-processor. And so taking your time at the beginning, uh, I think matters a lot until you develop trust in the post. And then I think really it comes down to a couple things. So we, we don't run machines tired here. If something feels wrong, we stop until we figure out what's wrong. And I can't tell you how many times it's been 3 p.m. I've got the program loaded, tools checked, everything's ready to go. And it's something just feels off and I just go home. And I come back the next day and inevitably I find something that was wrong. And then it comes down to, you know, I think as a machinist, you develop scars from things going wrong and kind of <laughs> you say never again. Yeah, and, for sure. You know, so I don't, uh, I check the torque on the vice right before I hit cycle start every single time because that, you know, the first time I threw apart because I forgot to tighten the vice was, you know, left in my memory. And so- oh. You know, I think it's just, it's pulling time out of the equation is, is what it really comes down to. I like that. 
So you also said two things. You said you have a no tolerance policy for crashes, but you also recognize that there's human error. So how do you strike that balance? Because the last thing you want to do is, you know, come down on your machinist so hard that they hide mistakes from you. But you also don't want to be so lax that they're breaking tools left and right because, oh, I'm, I'm trying to prove a process. So I, how did you strike that balance and accept, you know, failure and mistakes but also in, you know, very much encourage them to not make them. Yeah, it's, it's a really fine balance, right? Uh, and so I have something I tell everybody when I onboard them, which is mistakes are inevitable. And I just ask you kind of do three things after that mistake has happened. The first is acknowledging the mistake and the role that you played in, in creating it. So, you know, it's that first step of identifying how this happened. You know, what went wrong in the process that got me here? The second thing is acknowledging the impact that that uh, failure had on the company and just everything in general. So whether that's schedule or, you know, expense or whatever else. And then the third thing is just coming up with a way not to do it again. Let's change the process. Um, You know, it's just inevitable that people are going to drop tool holders, that they're going to break tools, things are going to rub. But as long as we're on a trajectory of constant improvement and you step back from people when they're trying to, to set up a part and run it for the first time, we really haven't had trouble. That's great. I like that a lot. I think my first boss did, it was not so not as formalized and not as well spoken, but he did very similar things with me that are lasting impressions for sure. So yeah, I mean, I, oh, go, go no, for it. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, it's, I think often removing money from the equation is helpful. So letting our, letting our guys know that, you know, some of that comes down to the, the budgeting of the business is making sure that we have the resources available to support it when a tool breaks or something gets dropped. It's also investing in the best tooling that we possibly can. And whether that's the physical tools in the machine or the software, I think really reduces the risk as well. Definitely. I wholeheartedly agree there. So you had hired on these mechanical engineers. Where did the company go from there? Yeah. So, you know, for the last, you know, since 2018, we've been working on a a single internal product. So it's something that hopefully will be debuted in the next year or two, but, you know, we've really been, we've really been working over this, these last three or four years in refining that product through kind of design iteration on the computer, but also, you know, manufacturing prototypes, testing them, putting them in the field, you know, our customers, we take very seriously our commitment to the warfighter. And making sure that they have a product that is, you know, well-engineered from the start, but also thoroughly and exhaustively tested before it ever goes out in the field. And so it's, it's a very long design process here. You know, we're working in, in complex assemblies that take a lot of time to, to sort out. And so, uh, you know, there's been a whole lot, a whole variety of projects over the years that we've worked on, uh, but they're really, you know, 70% of what we do here is, is product focused for internal designs that we have complete agency over and the balance is, you know, supporting other companies in their product design. And then a very, just a very small amount of, of kind of job shop contract manufacturing work. That's awesome. So this is still the same product from the grant that you've been working on through now. Correct. Yeah. So it's been a long road. We're very excited about the results and it was really the, it was that product that drove the initial purchase of the 460, it drove the purchase of the LB, the lathe. Um, it eventually drove the MU and the Kern and the Aroa were really purchased specifically for this part. And it's, it's long-term full rate production. 
How cool. That that's I imagine it's very gratifying to be able to put that much time and effort into one product or family of products or whatever it is. That sounds really cool. Yeah, it's a it's a really wonderful experience to have a customer that is willing to share in our vision of quality and performance. So somebody who is is really willing to invest the time and money to perfect something. Totally. So what about other software that you're using? I imagine you have some sort of PDM and some sort of ERP if you're running, you know, especially government type projects. Yeah. So we, we started building our own internal ERP software. So again, kind of that mentality of investing in, in smart people who are curious and, and well-intentioned, our compliance officer kind of absorbed and, and took on that, that responsibility and, you know, kind of similar to my story taught herself how to program and ended up writing our, our, the internal software that we use to manage the company. No way. That's so cool. That's a, a rarity for sure. Yeah, it's remarkable. So, you know, some of it has been really nice to develop really tailored solutions to our problems. And then certainly, you know, as we get bigger and the problems become more complex, we'll probably eventually onboard some kind of third-party ERP system to take over some of the more complex tasks. But it's certainly a really big part of our process here. That's excellent. Well, let's get into questions from listeners. We've got a ton. Your friend and mine, Dustin, first asked, you're a dear friend, but will you ever machine as well as you shoot? I appreciate that, Dustin. No, we're, you know, the origins of us getting into the defense world really started with me shooting competitively as a kid. And so that was a another part of my my life in the past. And uh, that's where Dustin and I met. And it's it's kind of fun to see, you know, I think that industry is so intertwined with manufacturing. And it's been really nice over the years to maintain those connections from that from that time in my life and be able to see people start manifesting their own product designs and building their own companies and get into manufacturing. Definitely, yeah. Uh, Servant Solutions asked, why did you choose the Micro HD over the Micro Vario? And actually, let's expand that. Why Kern in general? What made you guys go down that route? You know, I think it started with the 460 in you know, in, in trying to pursue our customer's vision of quality and of performance, our engineers drove us to um, really high dimensional standards. And we were struggling over long production runs with thermal issues. And, you know, I think for the traditional part, it really wouldn't even be something that you would notice. But when you're trying to hold, you know, micron level true positions, it starts to get a little challenging. And oh, wow. so it, it started there. And you know, we, we started looking, you know, obviously we had the base model Akuma. And so we knew that their MU line, you know, their, their full fledged five axis machines offered a lot of, you know, thermal management that our existing machine didn't have. And, you know, we started looking at other, other machine tool manufacturers. We looked at Hermla and, and we looked at Kern and, um, you know, early in the business, we realized that, you know, going, meeting people face to face, you know, whether it's our anodizer, our material vendor, whoever it is, meeting them face to face was invaluable. And, you know, aside from being like a nerd in manufacturing and I didn't need much of an excuse to take a trip over to Bavaria, we we went to Eschenloa to see Kern and we went to Gosheim to see Hermla on the same trip. And I think that was it's really invaluable to be able to see the machines without their sheet metal on and see how they're constructed underneath and and what the process is behind. You know, what's the design theory and how are they assembled? Definitely. Yeah. 
So then why HD over Vario? Is it just because of those very tight true positions? You know, that was certainly some of it. You know, Kern has, I think, kind of unique claim on their ability to achieve, you know, volumetric true position. And so that was certainly something that I knew I needed to commit energy towards. And, you know, I think a lot of credit to the folks at Kern that, you know, and Dan specifically that said, hey, look, man, you know, your parts are really going to be just fine on a Vario. But I think early on, you know, maybe it was a sunk cost dilemma that it was like, you know, if I'm going to pay this much anyways, I might as well get the best that I can. Um, right. So I don't know if I going to Germany, I had already made the decision of HD over Vario. But certainly seeing the machines in person and seeing the way they're constructed, the HD was a, it was a refined product that I think had inherited a lot of, you know, in, in being a product-based company, you can see the evolution of your own design. And I could see the evolution of the HD being an improvement over the Vario in terms of rigidity. And, you know, the HD, whatever machine we chose to make this part and to put it into full rate production needed to be able to produce, you know, tens of thousands of parts a month. And so, you know, we're talking, we're moving 150 pounds of material a night. And so it was a lot of, um, you know, we're very fortunate to have a part, a family of parts that we knew ahead of time when purchasing a machine. And so, you know, when we went to, to Kern, we asked them to do a demo because we're removing so much material. You know, a lot of our parts start maybe at a thousand grams of material and the finished part is maybe 12 to 15 grams. And so, oh, wow. you know, it's, it's just a huge amount of material removal to leave the lightest part possible. And so we asked them to do a demo uh, showing the machine's ability to remove material. And honestly, the machine was removing material at a faster rate than our cat 40 machines were. And, you know, certainly you could push a cat 40 machine harder than an HSK 40, but you know, to have reliable process, we don't push our machines that hard. And so I kind of realized at that moment, the HD is, is more than good enough, uh, in terms of rigidity to do what we need it to. Awesome. Well, some more, we've got a bunch more current questions. Uh, steel Phil wanted to know about managing your ERC 80. Are you using the Aroa software and what's the learning curve been like for uh, autonomous running? Yeah. So we're using batch process manager, which is the hide and high native uh, solution. And, and I don't really see a need to go to beyond anything beyond that. I think if we, we've talked about putting a CMM on the other side of the Aroa to have it offload parts, which I think is a little bit of a romantic vision. Um, and so, you know, if we go to something, if we decide to integrate another machine that isn't a Kern on the other side of the Aroa, we might need to look at different software, but I think for 95% of applications, batch process manager is more than powerful enough. Okay. And then, yeah, what's the learning curve been like? Have you been ensuring safer operation that doesn't help the machine, you know, for with like broken tool detection, probing, all of that stuff? Yeah. So, you know, the learning curve was really short. You know, in part, I think anyone who's bought an Aroa in the last two years has known that their lead time hasn't been the best. And so our machine showed up four months before our did. And so we had programs ready fully flushed out by the time the Aroa got here. And so I think, you know, within a day or two after Tina had left doing the install of the Aroa, we had it running overnight. And then in terms of, of safe running, you know, I really think it comes down to, it's what we had talked about before, right? It's, it's people in process. Um, so obviously we're doing tool breakage detection. 
100% of the time as tools leave the cutting area. We're not doing anything in terms of logic behind that to call redundant tooling or to call, you know, the next palette and start, start over with, with a, with a sister tool. You know, I think it's something that we'll probably explore in part. I live really close to the shop and we're just getting it off the ground. And so I'm not hyper-focused or worried about absolute spindle uptime. I'm much more interested in, in refining the process to a point that it's, it's reliable. And, you know, we haven't had, you know, we've been making this family of parts on the Akumas for years. And so we have a pretty robust understanding of the tool life that we get out of everything. And so, you know, I think we've, I, I don't believe we've had a single tool break in the current. Wow. Um, so from <laughs> that killer. standpoint, yeah, we're just not really suffering from that. We do a lot of stuff at the beginning. Some of it has been from learn mistakes. Some of it is seeing our friends on social media make mistakes and going, oh, never thought about that one. I need to develop a process around that. So, you know, our, our stock is prepared in a way it can't be loaded incorrectly. Uh, you know, we probe everything as it comes into the machine. Everything that goes in the machine is dovetailed. So we're not relying on stamped work holding or holding into a vice. Just again, for process reliability. You know, everything is validated in Camplete. Then we validate everything in DCM on the control. It's all run very carefully at the beginning and it's using tool paths and tooling that we've used for years. And so I think maybe we have a little bit of an artificial, we've had artificially good luck because we're kind of making parts we've made before. But I think beyond that, we're also just blessed with the fact that we, we have the time in our schedule to be able to commit as much energy as we do into process as opposed to just needing to get the part running as soon as possible. Yeah, that sounds almost luxurious coming from a, a prototype standpoint. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so you mentioned you know process, including tool holding and work holding. What's your go-to for this stuff? Yeah, so we're, we use a lot of Helical Harvey, you know, Micro 100 line. I think like everyone else, we've just found that their, their online catalog, for the lack of a better term, their GUI is better than anyone else's. And it's so good that our engineers use it. So, you know, oftentimes features in the parts will actually be called out by their, you know, helical EDP number. Um, <laughs> so we've gotten to a point now where our engineers are, are so involved in the DFM process that they're actually calling tools out to manufacturing. And so they've been really wonderful. Um, I would say everything beyond them, when we can't get what we need out of helical, we go to Frasia. Um, Really for, you know, Frasia obviously has this higher cost associated with it, but they have the most robust speeds and feeds of anyone that we work with. And so we know that when we get a tool from them, it's going to run. And so I think for us, Frasia has really been our get out of jail free card. Uh, when the engineers are trying to push us to really challenging, you know, LD ratios or anything else. And then for all of our drilling and reaming, you know, everything has been MA4. They've been a really wonderful vendor for us and their tools are really reliable. We use a lot of Nachi products for flat bottom drilling, and then we use a lot of OSG for our tapping, and then scientific cutting tool for all of our thread milling. Awesome. And then what about tool holders and vices or, or dovetail vices or whatever you're using? Yeah, so tool holding is, I think like a lot of folks, we started with Mari Tool. We, must, we have hundreds of their holders here. I think they make a really high value product. We've had some issues on the support side with them. And so we've started to move away from them. We have a fair bit of YG1 and Technics products, but then, you know, as of late, we've gone almost completely Rigafix. So 
We use a lot of Rigafix. Obviously, it's exclusively Rigafix on the Kern, um, but we're starting to migrate that onto the MU. And then our lathe, it's almost exclusively Sandvik. You know, I think a lot of that has just been, you know, our engineers are producing really challenging parts. Our, our customer has really high standards. And so we try to match the challenge of what we're trying to do with the vendor that we're using to support it. So, you know, so many things are solved by having the knowledge the tool has zero run out or near zero run out. It's so much is solved by knowing that it's not the end mill that's causing the problem most likely. Yeah. Um, and so that's, it's been... You know, it's a huge upfront investment to get into these tooling systems, but I've found the ROI to be really, you know, it's a worthwhile investment. And now I can't tell you how much time I've spent dialing in tools in ER holders. And, you know, it's always that time where you have to finish it that day and you're tapping the thing in and you break that 440 thread mill and you realize, you know, maybe I didn't net out positive here. You know, maybe I would have saved some money <laughs> if I had just bought a tool holder that wouldn't have this issue. And, you know, at the beginning, we tried to go down the shrink fit road. And I think we made this big mistake in buying a low cost shrink fit machine that couldn't heat up the holders fast enough. And so it was easy to get the tools in. It was really hard to get them out. And shrink fit is amazing if you have the, I think the right machine behind it and we just didn't. So I think in hindsight, if we had started with Heimer as opposed to going to the Mari tool uh, kind of economy machine, we probably would be more of a shrink fit shop. But again, you know, we run a lot of tools under quarter inch and I think shrink fit starts to struggle a little bit there. And I think if I could go back in time, we would have just jumped into the Regofix uh, boat earlier. The power grip is just a really tremendous product. It's amazing. Yeah, we, we've started switching all of our standard tools over to it. I know a lot of people are like, why are you putting power grip in a brother? And it's for the exact same reasons you said, you know, like I don't have, I have zero worries about run out. I have zero worries about tool pull out. Like I just load it and I go. And that's never, it doesn't cross my mind anymore that that's the problem. You know, and I think there's this other big component of it. Like you can, you can calculate the cost time of tearing down each holder but you can't calculate the intellectual capacity that it takes, the amount of energy that's consumed by running a system that has run out. And whether you're having to dial that run out or you're worried about the tool's performance as a result of it. And so I think Regofix, if you asked our guys, they would say, you know, this has really freed us up to focus on what matters and not just be worried about the tools all the time. Yeah, 100% really is. <laughs> we posted on LinkedIn that we had switched to it and I think it was Rob Lockwood or somebody or maybe Jamie that posted. They were like, yeah, it's worth every penny, but it's a lot of pennies. Uh, and yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. it's very rare that something that expensive really is worth the money or like all the money. And yeah, it's just amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any free lunch. Um, you know, looking back, I don't know if we would change anything because I don't think somebody starting out should buy Regofix. You know, I oh, don't same. think yeah. I couldn't yeah. afford it. Like no. there's, there's no way. And we rolled in the starter pack to our most recent machine purchase. And even then like buying more holders, it still hurts, you know, like, oh, okay, that's a few more thousand dollars. Like, yep. But yeah. you know, every time I load up a tool and not worry about it, or I directly have seen tool life increases in stainless steels and things like that, that I have to attribute to power grip. There's no, nothing else that has really changed. How are you guys handling the cleaning process? 
oh, I just soak everything in alcohol. Like we have the little, okay, you yeah. know, uh, taper wipe, but we have a spray bottle of alcohol right next to the unit and I soak the collets and blow them out and wipe them out with Q-tips and just soak the holder and then use the taper cleaner. And yeah, I would much rather overdo it than underdo it. Yeah, I think we're, we have nearly identical processes. So it's, I think that's the only thing, but I think that's just immutable. I don't think you're going to get away from that in any tooling system. You know, I think shrink fit to an extent is, is a lot easier in that regard, but I think it's a, a worthy price to pay. Yeah, well, and we've started just cleaning our ear collet holders even more now because I think it's one of those things you don't really think about when you're starting out is like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, I'll wipe out a collet or a wipe out a collet nut. But now I really spend a little bit more time and I, I have a ultrasonic system that I'm putting together for our collet systems, like not the power grip, but for ER, that's going to be a rinse in one. of It's like an Elma ultrasonic fluid that's supposed to be completely neutral so it shouldn't eat away at any of the collets and then rinse in alcohol and then it'll be a final dunk in m1 steroid oil but just to make sure that from here on out i just don't have to worry about dirt in any of my collets or, or grime or anything yeah you'll have to tell me how that works out it's um building those little closed cells where everything that you need is in one station and you just get to offload the concern of that away, I think is invaluable. And then knowing the inverse that you come up to that cell because you need to do something and you're not worried that everything's going to be where it should be and that you have all the tools you need. You're not going to have to spend 15 minutes running around the shop trying to find the torque wrench. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing that's holding it up right now is I'm trying to find two more bins for the alcohol and the M1 that are sealable, but are easy to, you know, fill and all of that stuff. And once I find those, yeah, I'm going to set it up and, and get it gone. Awesome. Uh, LHM Engineering asked, how has the process been of bringing on the current and learning the hide and hide control? Yeah, you know, it's uh, I think it is predictably challenging. You know, it's certainly, you know, Haas is a one day, two day, three day process. Um, and I think if you come into, it goes back to, there is no free lunch, right? That with all of that performance comes challenge and it's not outside of the scope of what I expected, but it's certainly not without challenges. You know, if you're, if you're expecting machine to have volumetric accuracy under a micron, it's going to take some work to get there. And totally. Yeah. So it's, you know. Uh, onboarding of the MUs, the MU, I should say, I think taught us that lesson um, in seeing, all right, you know, it's going to take six weeks to get this up and running. And I think set our expectations correctly. But, you know, the results kind of speaks for itself. You know, I, I don't think, I think the true test is, would you do it again? And the answer is a resounding yes. Um, okay. I don't think that there's a machine that can match the performance of the HD for the parts that we're trying to produce on it. And was the MU significantly different enough from the 460 that it took that long? What do you mean by that? Well, like I would would have imagined that onboarding the MU would have been very simple since you were already so used to 5-axis with a OSP control. You know, I think some of it isn't so much our process. It's just the logistics of getting a machine that complicated running. Um, so it's... You know, I think even Kern, I think, was optimistic. KPI was optimistic that, you know, they'll arrive on a Monday and by Friday, the machine will be running. And I think all of our guys kind of looked at each other and said, there's not a chance in hell. Um, <laughs> you know, it takes it takes a week of just plumbing, you know, of just routing hoses around. And so, you know, I had those expectations. The MU is also the first machine that we ever got laser shot on site. And, 
you know, that was a week long process and that held true for the current as well. You know, it's just, it's an involved process. Things go wrong. You run into little errors, you know, things weren't shipped, whatever the, whatever it might be. It, it's not, it's not totally turnkey. Um, so the MU, you know, from a process standpoint, as far as programs and all that, I mean, we knew how to run the control the day it got here, right? It was, it was one and the same. It was more just infrastructure change of, and kind of shut down of putting in a machine of that scale. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how much are you involved in new machines like the Kern? Like, are you programming it too? Because I know a lot of people when they hire machinists and support personnel, they're either trying to or just de facto being removed from that process. But it sounds like you're kind of still in it. Yeah, I would say, you know, up until let's say a year ago, I was programming 95% of our parts here across the three axis, five axis and turning centers. And I had every intention when I bought the Kern that I was basically going to hand, everybody was going to jump up one machine and the Kern was kind of going to become my baby and where I would prototype and that I was going to set up the production for this. And, you know, I think some of it is that through Dan, we found an amazing machinist named Matthew, uh, who we we brought in from another shop. And I, I realized in the six months between when we hired him and when the Kern got here that he had a much higher aptitude for Heidenhain and for a lot of the simultaneous five axis work that we needed to do than I did. And he was the right mixture of kind of diligence, but also speed that we needed for that machine. And so a little bit bittersweet in really handing the machine off to him. So I've done some light programming, but I would say 95% of what's been done on the the current has been Matthew. And you know, a real shout out to him in that respect of, of getting that running. But I think also a, a testament to the folks at Camplete, at Mastercam, at Barefoot, our distributor, you know, of Chris and Tina and the folks at, in Eschenwoa of being able to provide us the resources we need to get the machine kind of singing the way it does. So I'm still, you know, I still am programming day to day on the lathe and getting some of the more complex CAD CAM stuff running. And I'm still involved every single day in troubleshooting problems that are happening and, and sitting down with our machinists and, and programmers. But I'm, I, I realized in order for the business to grow, I needed to get off the controls, which was a sad but necessary reality. Totally. Yeah. Uh, LHM Engineering also asked, have you found any limitations of the HSK40? You, you know, he also I was asking, you know, why choose the current, but you've kind of gone over that. But yeah, why HSK40 and... You said that it's even roughing faster than your cat 40s? Yeah, so that's a little bit probably of a, of a misnomer. Uh, it is the demo that we saw in Eschenloba, the Kern was roughing at a faster rate than we would ever push our cat 40s. Gotcha. Um, okay. And I don't know the rate to which, you know, as a percentage basis, how close we are to the limit, but I do know that we're at a stable process. And so, you know, perhaps in time as we grow, we'll start trying to push the machines incrementally harder. But we're running in a very stable zone. So I don't find the rigidity of the HSK platform of HSK40E to be a, a major point of concern for us. What I think the Kern does so well is the kinematic design from the beginning was designed for having B at 90. And so from a clearance standpoint, the machine is unbelievable. And so being able to run you know, tools with 62 millimeter, 870 millimeters, 80 millimeter gauge line is, uh, I think defeats a lot of the challenges that, so obviously CAF 40 is more rigid, but 
the machine is so well designed kinematically that we can run drastically shorter tooling. And I think we kind of net out in that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I never really thought about that, but that makes a big difference for sure. It, you um, know, it was a it was a big change for us even in the MU was that there was so much more clearance in the MU that you know we're running three and a half four inch gauge line tools. And I apologize to all the listeners who are having to listen to me convert between metric and standard constantly. <laughs> but it's, you know, I think any time you're exploring five axis, you need to really strongly be considering how compact you can get your tooling because it, it really makes a big difference. Yeah, I think that that's a kind of like the the graphics. It's one of those unthought about, untalked about things for sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You, you had mentioned how important it is to meet face-to-face, and you just recently got to go to Japan. And Chief Bub was asking, what was the coolest part of Japan? Did you go see any Japanese garden or see any bonsai? So how was the trip? Yeah, the trip was amazing. So, you know, origins of the trip were kind of funny that twice a year we host a trivia game at work with all of our employees, and we, we give away all these prizes. And one of them was a trip anywhere that somebody wanted to go, as long as it was work-related and you know, we could drive some benefit in terms of education, but I kind of pitched it as, Hey, we, if you can find a conference that we want to go to in Hawaii, let's go do it. (laughs) And, uh, it wasn't picked first. And so I was, you know, I thought, well, man, maybe I'm just awful to travel with. And I don't realize it. And our compliance officer was the, when it came her to be her time to pick the prize, she picked the trip and said, I want to go to Japan and everybody else who had picked previously kind of jumped up and said, that was an option. And I said, well, well, yeah, well, we want to switch. I said, well, I can't, you know, she was so excited. We couldn't take it away from her. So I then called our sales rep at more South, who's the kind of the U S distributor for Akuma and said, Hey, you know, can I, can I come get a factory tour? You know, it's something that I had always wanted to do. And now this was the justification to do it. And it was kind of like a six month process from there of, you know, I had no intention of them paying our way or anything. I just wanted to, you know, see if they'd lend me an afternoon to see their facility. And it turns out that Akuma America hosts something called America's Days, um, which is a an opportunity for the whole North and South American market to come to Japan and and see Akuma's facility. So I think we were just the you know the squeaky wheel that got the oil. I think we were probably the smallest customer there, but we were just the most passionate, excited about going. And so uh, they were able to get us tickets. Unfortunately, due to some logistical issues with COVID and the like, Akuma only had the ability to bring one of us over. So uh, we'll be, I think, going back again with with our compliance officer to see Akuma again and, and travel a little bit more of the country. But um, yeah, it was it was a tremendous opportunity. You know, it was a very kind of you know, well-scheduled and organized event. So they were able to coordinate all of our travel and, you know, take us through two days of seminars and factory tours, and then take us through and kind of give us a a 30,000 foot tour of Japan over the next two days. And, you know, I was really happy. Our salesman reached out to us and said, you know, Hey, if we're all the way over here, would you like to stay a couple extra days and, you know, get to see a little bit more of the country. So we had that opportunity. Unfortunately, to, to Alex's question, we weren't, I didn't get to see, we went to a couple of temples and, and got to see some gardens, but nothing, I think, at the level that, that he's referring to. And I think I just left that trip with a, a lot of lessons learned at Akuma, but also this kind of deep desire to go back to the country and, and explore some more. That's great. Yeah, Japan is amazing. Brad and I went there 
geez, really five years ago, I want to say, uh, as kind of a business slash fun trip and absolutely just loved it. What part of the country were you in? Yeah, so I'm not sure where Akuma is. Yeah, so they're in a city called Nagoya. Yeah, that's um, where I flew into, actually. Oh, no kidding. What were you doing in Japan? Uh, we went to DMG Mori, and yeah. we also went to the Mitotoyo Museum and, and saw one of their places there. Yeah, it's it's a really weird experience, kind of the culture shock of arriving in Japan, and then you're driving down the highway in Nagoya, and you're like, man, I recognize half these company names. Uh-huh. You know, you're driving by Mazak and, and all these other companies, and you go, man, this is really... You know, you start to understand why all these machine tool makers are there. Oh yeah, well, and like, well, I think when we flew in, I want to say all of the luggage luggage carts were Fanuc branded, and it was just like, you know, all all these little things that you're like, oh, that's really funny. I would never see this in the U.S. Yeah, no, I, I think that was, you know, it was kind of twofold. I really enjoy factory tours, both as an opportunity to learn about the machine tool manufacturer um, and you know, ask some technical questions, but also just the the traveling aspect of getting to see other parts of the world uh, i think is a real hidden benefit of of this job totally yeah uh alex also asked how big do you plan to grow your business and what are the two or three top obstacles you can currently see in your way yeah so i think it comes down to what we've been talking a lot about which is kind of people process and uh, i guess i should come up with something else that starts with a p but probably (laughs) cash flow and accounting would be the other side of it so, you know, I think we've done a, f- a really amazing job at building a culture here where everyone not only gets along, but they have the kind of resources and tools they need to do their job at a high level. But certainly as I look into the future at what, you know, the, the opportunities are, you know, we're turning away more work right now than we're taking on. And so it's a really wonderful problem to have, but it also opens up all these questions about growth and, and the direction we want to go. And I think all of that is starts with people and figuring out how we're going to scale uh, in a fashion where we preserve happiness while also kind of abiding by our quality standards. So, you know, one of my early business mentors when I first started the shop and I, you know, framed out that little little office up in that print shop. You know, the owner of that business had a really large company with you know you know over a hundred employees and. Over the years, as his business matured, he ended up firing a lot of his problematic customers and the guys that gave him heartache. And his philosophy was that, you know, my job here is to make money and have fun. And these customers or, or folks that are working for me are getting in the way of that. And so he let a lot of those people go, both customers and employees, and found that he was making more money and deriving more happiness and that his guys were happier and, and the whole situation was better. And that's certainly a lesson that I don't want to lose in our growth is, is how we grow in a fashion that we, uh, everyone is wakes up in the morning and is excited to come into work and that they have the tools that they need and that we have the work for them to do. And so I think that's one part of it. And then the other side is I realized that in that growth, we're going to need more robust process because the growth is only successful if we can maintain the quality standards that are currently bringing our customers to us. And, you know, that starts with good people, but it's only realized through process. So, you know, developing more robust ERP systems uh, and more robust onboarding systems and HR systems and all the things that make a business tick and make it seamless are certainly at the forefront of my mind. And, you know, we, we have, Again, in that, in that idea of visiting vendors 
and getting to see people face to face. I'm afforded this wonderful opportunity of getting to talk to other business owners that are in almost every instance running much larger and more successful businesses than ours and getting to ask them, you know, what they struggle with and challenge are now challenged with on a day-to-day basis. And it always revolves around people. And, you know, I think universally, you know, we're 13 folks that's still level where I know everybody and I can I'm involved in, you know, most of the day-to-day decisions. But when you get to 25 or 30 or 50 or 200, that goes away. And so developing those middle managers and the folks that can communicate the customer's vision to the guys and validating that they're producing an outcome that will meet that standard is, is really kind of what keeps me up at night. And so that's our growth area. And then, you know, as kind of a, as a lower tier concern is just always just day-to-day operations of maintaining positive cash flow and and making sure that we're making good capital investments into new machines, into new people, into new infrastructure uh, so that we can support you know where our customer is going to be a couple of years from now and where we're going to be, not just what the problems are today. Okay. Yeah. So one of his other questions was, do you bind all the automation hype? How do you see automation growing with your company as you add more people? I mean, obviously it allows you to do more with less, but where do you see that in your, your plan? You know, I think it relates to what we just talked about, which is um, with good people, um, with, with smart, motivated guys, you're able to reap the benefits of automation. Because automation relies on really robust, diligent operator attached to it. And I I don't necessarily mean operator in the sense of the way our industry uses it. The human-robot link needs to be really robust. And so to some extent, I am maybe envious or curious as to how these really large businesses are able to take skill level one guys and put them in these really complex automation cells and get them to work. I I think that's a little bit opaque to me. And I think that's why we started with the Aroa was that the Aroa is kind of like the, the simple man's automation, right? You pay your way out of the problem because instead of robotically loading material and device, you're just loading vices. (laughs) So it's the, it's the vastly more expensive way to solve this problem, but it's the easier I think to implement. And I think, you know, going back to Japan, you know, Akuma was gracious enough to let us into their Kani dream site. And they have, if my memory serves me, six of their largest double column machines. So these are, these are machines where the, you know, the X and Y travels are measured in, well, the X travels are measured in double digit meter values. Uh, And that whole facility is manufacturing their castings. And, you know, your building is probably 300,000 square feet and they had less than 10 guys working inside of it. And there were no managers walking around hassling folks. Everyone knew what to do. It was quiet and stable. And so I think that is inspirational, but I think it's also the product of a company that's been around for 125 years. And, you know, it's (laughs) one of our, one of our peers who was there from one of the other companies asked, you know, how do you manage tool break detection? How do you, you know, what is that? How does, how does, how are you guys solving that problem here? And I think the Japanese were a little confused by the question. And we thought initially it was a translating issue, but we learned that they just, their process is so robust. They don't worry about that. Like we do. 
<laughs> What's um, a broken tool? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, and you realize it's like, man, if I had been making virtually, you know, some version of the same product, if I've been machining and cast iron for the last hundred years, I would probably have a similar answer. Um, right. I mean, even the last ten years, like if you had been doing yeah. the same part since you started your company, like you'd you'd be pretty dialed at this point. Yeah. And so, you know, they're doing all the stuff that we're doing, right? They're doing automatic tool break detection. They're doing all sorts of clever mid, mid process inspection and logic to with sister tooling and all of that. But more so, they have really robust process. So, do I believe in the hype of automation? Absolutely. Do I think it's a get out of jail free card? No. You know, I, I think it is absolutely. And it's why these trips, you know, we kind of joke from the outside that these trips are like, you know, let's go to a conference in Hawaii, right? And but it's not that. It's if you are not innovating, if you're not staying at the cusp um, all the time, then you're going to get left behind at some point. And you know, at, back to the question that was asked earlier about why did we pick the HD over the Vario? It was about differentiation. It was about that the HD could offer us something to our customers that no one else had in our area, and that was more important to me, and that was going to keep us you know, at a level above our competition for years to come. And I think automation is the same thing. It's why we saw so much more of it in 2022 at IMTS than we did in 2018. And I think it is probably akin to the paradigm shift that happened in the eighties or nineties when we were going from, you know, what percentage of shops were manual machine shops in the eighties and what percentage were running NC or CNC equipment. And I think that question will probably be asked again in 10 years from now as to the shops that succeed are the ones that are able to use automation effectively. And the question right now is just like, when do you, when do you jump in and to what extent do you want to jump in? You know, I think things are vastly more accessible than they ever have been, but it's also, it's just hard. And you also have to have the product family or, or, or parts that can justify the rate of production. You know, that has been I think I've heard Mickey talk about this and Alex, you know, it's kind of shocking how fast you can make parts <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, coming in, you know, there was one of the parts that we're running on the current right now, we were getting, let's say seven to nine a day out of our MU and in a 24 hour period. So if you just came, came in at 6am and came in at 6am the next day, we're making 47 of them on the current. Wow. Difference isn't just, you know, a lot of it, right. is 42,000 RPM. Um, some of it is shorter kinematic loop, right? So we're just not traveling as much distance. Most of it is that the machine is running at night and that our guys are free to focus on other things. And so they're spending more time watching the program. They're developing improvements. You know, I'm sure we could get, if you, if we put a HSK 63, 20K spindle in the Akuma, it would probably start to balance out. But the real differentiator is just the fact that the machine is running from 5 p.m. until 6 a.m. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So is there any plans on bringing automation to machinery you current have, currently have? Yeah, you know, the it's a mistake I won't make again, which is purchasing. We've made some mistakes in automation. The first of which was that we didn't buy our MU with through air or through hydraulic on the table. Yeah, I'm so, guessing that that's either impossible to retrofit or incredibly expensive. Yeah, it's it's just not not a feasible solution, and so that really limits us. Uh, you know, the cost to automate that machine would be tremendous, and so it's kind of 
relegated is probably a little too harsh, but it is, it's going to find its home in different work than maybe what it could have done. And then we tried, you know, I've heard a lot about that bar feeders are the cheapest form of automation that you can buy. And so I leaned really heavily in that when we purchased our LB with this thought that we're going to commit the space to the bar feeder, but we're also going to commit, you know, it was something like a $13,000, $14,000 option to add automatic probing into the, the LB. And neither of those have netted more parts for us because our parts are too high tolerance and they're made out of too exotic of alloys to allow an operator not to be present. And whether that's chip wrappings, whether it's chip management, or it's just the fact that, you know, machining 17.4 and titanium and some other alloys are really challenging. Um, and insert life is a thing and the machine just can't be left for that long. And so I've grown, I suppose, more informed, but also a little bit more skeptical of some automation and its ability to just do what the current is able to do for us right now with the ERC-80, which is leave at five and come in at six to a whole bunch of finished parts. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. I mean, the more people I talk to, it's, there's so many little things that you don't realize can really, really hurt you with automation. Yeah. And it's, um, boy, can you make bad parts fast? I mean, that's the other side of it. And, you know, the Kern in a lot of ways is kind of buying you out of those problems, right? That you have this really thermally stable machine that's just wildly accurate. And so, and you put really expensive tooling in it and you get, you solve, I think, a lot of the problems that people probably deal with. And you pair that with an ERC-80 and you're, you're left with only a handful of things that can go wrong. But, you know, certainly when we were making the decision between the ERC, between the the Hermla, Akuma, and Kern, you know, Hermla's native robot loading of material was something that was interesting, but I think a little intimidating because I just saw more ways that it could go wrong. And, you know, at some point we're going to need to make that jump because it just isn't affordable to have, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars worth of vice for every part. Right. Um, but I, certainly something that's on my list to learn more about over these coming years is, is how shops are are solving those problems. Oh, speaking of vices, I don't think we ever talked about which ones you guys are using. Yeah. So we use, again, we've kind of learned our lesson in this. Um, we use a lot of fifth access for our little dovetails. So like the D115s and the D22s. I think I wish there were more options in the market, but they are a pretty robust product and they stand behind what they make. Uh, and then we've gone pretty much entirely Aroa on all of our vices because we're just, they're more reliable than what we found from some of the other vendors. And again, some of their integrated solutions, like the we use a lot of their ITS-72 integrated vices. So it's not a two-part assembly. It's just, it's one piece has been really successful for us. And then everything after that is all kind of custom fixturing that we make in-house. Very cool. Well, that brings me on to shop news and new things. And actually, Alex's last question was, what will your next machine purchase be? So is there any you know, future plans on a new machine? Anything else new in the shop that you're excited about? What's going on? Yeah, so I think all of our salesmen should just you know, mute this conversation so they don't hear this. But uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, uh, we need to increase our capacity for small part turning. So we're looking at a whole diff- bunch of different uh, solutions there from, you know, Swiss machines to more traditional lathes. It's, it's a bottleneck that we have. So th- that's certainly on our docket. 
we bought our first CMM. So up until now, everything has been hard gauging and in-process probing. And then, you know, obviously optical comparators, but all kind of old school inspection. So we bought a Zeiss Duramax in part because for most of our parts, it's accurate enough and the shop floor stable nature of it and its form factor is, I think, kind of unmatched. I would have loved to have gotten a Contura or, you know, I think eventually we wound up with a Micura, but, um, you know, you really need, from what I understand, a, a pretty thermally stable environment that's very clean for those machines to net out the benefit of them. And definitely, yeah. You know, we're just, uh, whenever we decide to build a building or, or grow the business into a larger facility, will probably be when we start looking at, at larger inspection equipment. Yeah, we're actively looking at a Duramax or a, possibly a Tigo or one of the hexagon yeah. shop floors. Very up in the air. I don't really like PCDMS, and I think I've made it pretty clear on the podcast, but I love my hexagon salesman. And really what it's going to come down to is we're just going to pit Hexagon versus Zeiss and have Brad, who has no CMM experience, see what he likes and doesn't like about each software. Because I can learn anything at this point. And if he feels like he's going to be more confident with PCDMS, then we'll go with something with that. Yeah, I should have mentioned we have a Hexagon Roamer 8727R. So it's like a two-ish meter you know, mobile CMM with the RS6 scanner on it. And I very much relate to the challenge of PCDMS. You know, the arms are a little bit more challenging because there's just a couple more degrees of freedom and more human input. You know, powerful tool that we use on like a case-by-case basis as a, you know, it's sometimes the arms are the only thing that gets you out of jail. But I think it was a pretty clear choice for us between Zeiss and Hexagon on the software side. Calypso is just, I think, a lot more intuitive to use. That's what everyone is saying and i have no experience with it but i'm looking forward to trying it out because yeah I, I i spent what four years programming scanning cmms with pcdms and like oh wow i learned more from the forum than i did the classes that i took from hexagon and you know like there was a common fault with pcdms where all of a sudden your manual and automatic alignment just wouldn't work together like they just they, I don't know, like they, they violated clearly what was in the code. And the only thing workaround I could find, I found on the forum, and it was just copy out your entire program besides the alignments, redo, start a whole new file, redo your alignments, and then copy the program back in. And I was like, this is, if, if the right answer is copy paste, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's always funny when you end up in software and you realize you know, we were trying to do uh, some multi-start thread milling in Mastercam the other day and realized that they just didn't have that as a capability. And, you know, sometimes you just get into these most basic problems and you go, you know, so am I really the first person to to think this doesn't, that this should have this option? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it, and it just feels like a house of technical debt, like a house of cards of technical debt that's just been built on and built on. And it's like, come on, guys, like, just this whole thing needs to be redone from the ground up as far as I'm concerned. Have you used PCDMS since they developed the new GUI? Because I know, at least to my understanding in the past, it was all kind of pretty rigid hand programming. And now there's a much better HMI behind it. Uh, I think the last version I used was either 2020. I think 2020 was the last one, like R2. So I don't know if it was in there or not. 
Yeah, certainly talking to some of the older guys, it seems like uh, it was much worse and has gotten better. But I still just, the icons are even still quite hard to navigate. Yeah, yeah, it's just, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Like, maybe I'll try his ice and be like, oh, well, they both have issues. But we'll find out. <laughs> so you just got the CMM. Any other CNCs on the near future or kind of tapped out getting the current on? Yeah, so we're... We just placed the PO for the, the for the Duramax, so probably won't see it for three to five weeks. And then I suspect, you know, in everything, it'll probably be 10 or 12 before we have it up and running. Uh, but really excited to have that as a diagnostic tool for us. And, you know, we're spending a lot of money on hard gauging right now. And that's, I'm looking forward to being able to offset a lot of that into a CNC solution. But beyond that, you know, this year is really focusing on, on people and trying to limit as much as we can CapEx and trying to kind of give ourselves a little bit of, of breathing room to be able to pivot when the right opportunity presents itself. So um, we've been on kind of this really aggressive trajectory and uh, trying to slow that down a little bit to make sure that we grow in a stable way is, is really the focus of this year for me. So probably not a lot of machine tool investment. You know, I say that now and the right job comes and that can all change. I think that's been a real blessing as the business has grown is being able to only take on the work that makes sense for us and not take on things that are either outside of our skill level or aren't as profitable. And so being able to, whether it be firing or just not taking on work from customers uh, has been uh, kind of invaluable. And so I'm excited to see what the, the future year holds in terms of the work that comes in and how we might pivot the business. But as of right now, we don't have any big plans other than just kind of getting this current product into full rate production and seeing where that takes us. Yeah, that sounds super exciting. Well, that brings me to the last two questions I ask every guest every week. The first of which, which is, what did you research this week? Doesn't need to be machining related. It's just what's been popping up in your browser. It's always interesting to see what interesting people are into. That's a good question. Um, we've been looking a lot at machine-induced residual stress as well as internal residual stress. So trying to identify uh, a material that isn't cast iron that, when machined, has limited warpage, for the lack of a better term, um, but still gives us surface hardness and durability greater than aluminum. So if anybody listening has some great recommendation, I'm all ears. Really trying to, we have a product that we're trying to develop that requires quite high flatness tolerances after machining and needs to be machined from something quite durable and are kind of butting our heads up against some issues with warpage that we're seeing. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's really been the focus of this, this last week and certainly a, a growing respect for, for the Mars of the world who write all these wonderful papers and give us all of this data, um, <laughs> but certainly humbled by uh, the complexity of that issue. Definitely. Yeah. Material science is one of those things I wish I had more of a background in because it, like when I took material sciences classes at the time, I was like, I don't know why I need to know any of this. I don't care. And now it's like, oh man, I wish I had paid attention more and I wish I had gone deeper on that. <laughs> Yeah. And certainly, you know, when we were at, I was at Eschenlova just a couple you know, 
weeks or months ago and had an opportunity to spend the day with Marv and getting to see someone like him with his brain work is a fascinating thing. And, you know, working with, they have a new aerostatic ADK spindle that he was trying out for the first time. And we're having some harmonic issues, you know, just some chatter. And he went on his computer and changed the spindle RPM to a prime number. And I kind of, he did it as if this was so self-evident and I kind of had to like, okay, let's put the brakes on. What did you just do? And he explained it to me kind of like the Japanese would respond in not understanding tool breakage. And I said, you know, Marv, I'm throwing this down to, to my level here. And, you know, the outcome was that somebody with his background in education and understanding of math, uh, changing the spindle RPM to a prime number was a self-evident decision to make to reduce harmonics. And so I think the the lesson from that was that I am perpetually humbled in this industry by the the scale of knowledge that is out there and living in the bottom of that Dunning-Kruger curve that I'm just always learning just enough to know how much I don't know. <laughs> I think we could all empathize and sympathize there. Um, yeah, I, I very much feel that so often. So what is, uh, similarly, what is on your list? What are you searching these days? Oh, boy. Um, I'm still looking into 5-axis stuff. Everyone listening to this podcast will know that I am still constantly on the search for a new building for us, and that has just been string of disappointments left and right, which is no fun. Um, and then we recently, I think I said it an episode or two ago, we bought a camera, and so I've been just diving into learning how to edit and DaVinci Resolve and all of that, which has been just such a deep rabbit hole. And I don't know that I'm ever going to get good <laughs> enough to feel super confident in it, but I want to get confident enough that I can at least sub that workout as we kind of make more content for Proteum. How kind do you... Like, I'll go for it. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, kind of like how you you didn't know what you didn't know when you first started subbing out parts to shops. That's how I would feel subbing out editing to anybody right now is like, I don't even know what the words to ask for if I had critiques are. So I, I want to learn enough about the software and enough about the process that I can be intelligent if we start subbing that stuff out. Yeah, I think that's such a hard curve to get over in any of this is just, I don't know what I don't know. And I think that's where, you know, this podcast, whole Insta Machinist community is so wonderful because there's just been this incredible democratization of of information that you know I can just hop onto YouTube and learn so much about something that maybe five or ten years ago would have been relegated to you know the big aerospace companies and to to finding the right mentor. Totally, yeah. Well, and it's the unknown unknowns that really hurt you. Like there are many things that I know I don't know, but I know where I can look for those things. But it's the the ones that I have no idea I should even be paying attention to. That that's that's what really bites you in the ass in the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. So, what are you pursuing in terms of five axis? What are your your thoughts and concerns, and what are the the drivers for you into one machine over another? Right now, we're we're pretty sure it's going to be a C two fifty from Hermla. Uh, we went to Germany what a month ago, month and a half ago for their open house, and and kind of saw the whole factory and all of that. And as far it seems to me like service is really the biggest issue with any five axis and they actually are just opening up a, a service center in Phoenix shortly. And 
they kind of have a, a sterling reputation in that area. And, you know, with, with prototypes going into five axis and then also getting a machine that's automation prepped and can take one of their automation cells in the future, I think is just a necessity for us growing our business, especially like we, we were talking before the show, finding someone that I can hire. I want those kind of processes to already be in place or at least starting to be implemented when we hire somebody. Yeah, you know, I think Hermla, you know, it's kind of twofold, right? You you get into an ecosystem, and I think getting into Heidenhain is not a bad place to be. And then you struck on the exact reason that we kind of went with Akuma here in North Carolina was that, you know, more south of distributorship and the service behind it almost matters more than anything else. Of just having people that will stand behind the machine when things inevitably go wrong. Yeah, because I mean, they're... Once we start going down the five-axis route, more and more parts are going to be pushed off onto it. So a machine down will mean so much more, significantly more to our business than you know one of our brothers going down. And so we need something that we know can be fixed ASAP, and and like that that is a priority for the company we're buying from. Have you thought about how you might change the process around your company in terms of programming or workholding or any of that when you start thinking about onboarding a five-axis? Uh, I think we'll probably stick with fusion for now. Cause like you said, the, the tools are getting so much better within it, but we'll, I am already starting to dedicate quite a bit of time to developing workflows and templates and all of that on our three axis workflow. So that when we do get to five axis, that is kind of the commonplace is like, all right, we have a template file that we bring parts into. It's got our work holding. It's got all the probing and all, most of our tool paths already set up. And then we can kind of post and go from there very likely get complete as well just to kind of mitigate that whole finding a post-processor thing i think the performance line from heidenheim i believe complete already has some pretty dialed posts for both the c250 and c400 so that should hopefully be i mean i'm sure it's not going to be plug and play but about as close as you can get with a post for that yeah, and presumably, I'd be curious if Heidenheim has the same robust experience in terms of DCM that we have on the Kern on the Hermla, because I, for us that has been such a blessing that even even with Camplete, especially at the beginning, there's this big question mark as to whether or not the post is right. And right. DCM really gave us the confidence in that as that you know if you crash a machine, right? As we said earlier, there's five things that had to happen to get there, and DCM is a really powerful leg in, in preventing that. It's something that, you know, like CAS on Akuma is really powerful, but a lot harder to set up. And I think Hide 9 has done a really fantastic job in making DCM be really accessible. Yeah. Well, I know that the C250 would likely come with the TNC7, which is the newest control. And they had been showing off at the open house and before that even how much easier it is on TNC seven to set up simulation. So it should hopefully be there and be relatively easy. I mean, it's going to be a hurdle no matter what, but at least something that we can account for it and, you know, tackle once we get something like that. And you guys are very much space limited, I presume. In your oh current. man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With, yeah we, we just, there's no way we can get one in our current. We have a, a thousand yeah. square feet and a hundred amps of three phase and we are tapped out on power and tapped out on space. So yeah, it's right now it's just trying to find a space. Uh, for some reason, Tucson has not gotten the memo that uh, <laughs> commercial real estate is supposed to be softening right now. 
is very much not like that in town. Everything that I've found is gone within three days or under contract. And every deal we've tried to strike, they would rather do the easy thing versus, you know, splitting up a suite or big building or something. And so it's just been, it's been tough. I think I'm on, I don't know, building five or six that I've tried to make offers on to, to, you know, put under contract and they're already gone. So we'll get something. It'll just be much longer than we want. Yeah, that's a challenging problem. And I think certainly something that's shared here, you know, it's always the double-edged sword that you, you live in an, in an economy or in a environment where things are growing and there's lots of opportunity, which means you have great people in town. But the other side of that is it's really hard to find space. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my ever present um, thing. I'm constantly on all the websites to look for places, but yeah, that's basically what I've been researching, researching this week. Yeah, it's uh, been it, it's been a bit of a learning curve. You know, I think I'd like to think romantically that we'll end up building a dedicated facility. You know, I think these factory tours of places like Area Four One Nine are inspiring in in what's possible when you kind of build from the ground up. But you know, certainly, if not, I have learned our lesson here in terms of power and concrete of just how much cost you can, how much expense you can incur by coming into a building that isn't ready for industrial manufacturing. And, you know, I never thought that running power to a machine could cost as much as a Civic or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. Did you have to and, pour any slabs for like your MU? Yeah, all of them. So we're, we're oh, pretty geez. aggressive with that. So we've done it three times now and it's, it's a journey. We've gotten a lot better at it, but even still, that's a five figure problem usually and are close to it. And, you know, it's, there's a lot more than just the purchase price of a machine to budget for. And I'm continuously humbled by the number of things that come up when it comes into installing a new machine and power and concrete are always a big thing. And I think it's, you know, it's always a challenge, right? But you never want to be having an issue with the machine and wonder whether it's foundation related. And particularly, you know, the MU is 42,000 pounds and it's a big, long Jeez. casting. That's and, a monster. Yeah, it's got 18 feet on it or something like that. So it's you can you can really twist and pull it with you know it's anchored, uh, and so it was something for me that the calibration of the machine itself, shooting you know laser shooting the machine is something I'm absolutely going to do to every machine we get from this point on. But you know it's probably a ten thousand dollar problem, and it's not something where I want to question whether I need to redo it because the foundation settled. And so I think it's kind of that, that belt and suspenders approach that, you know, is, is an important thing to consider. Definitely. Yeah. Well, the other question I ask every guest is what are the things you're working on to be a better person, leader, employer, whatever, none of us are perfect. We're all working on stuff. What's yours? Hmm. You know, I think it's, um, we have, that's a challenging one. I think what we're, what I'm most focused on is becoming a better leader, you know, finding ways to communicate to our guys, the standards and expectations in a way that nets happiness and profitability. Cause you know, that's really what it all comes down to making money and having fun. And so as, as I think I've said a couple of times on this, people are, are the biggest challenge. And I think our guys would probably be surprised by the amount of time I spend worried about how they're doing and how things are going, whether or not I'm, I'm giving them the resources they need and, and all of that. So 
you know, very much focused on developing myself as, as a leader that can inspire people and, you know, create the best outcomes possible. Definitely. Yeah. I, I can only imagine, like, like I said, that's hiring somebody is something that gives me a lot of anxiety right now. Cause I know it's something I need to do, but I just don't feel ready for it. I think is the, the best way to put it. Like I, I know probably logically that that's really where we need to be, but yeah, just finding I've both Brad and I've worked with enough people in Tucson that I know, or at least I think I know that the people I can afford, I can't trust. And the people I can trust, I can't afford. Yeah, no, that's certainly a challenge. And, you know, onboarding is, you know, it's been a sliding scale that I think is fairly linear that the amount of time that I have to commit towards communicating the vision and the intent and the standards it shortens every time we onboard somebody. Mm-hmm. But it is, you, you very much feel at the beginning that this isn't saving time, that you're putting a tremendous amount of energy into just getting back to zero. And, but it's still, that doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile pursuit. And it is, you know, the, certainly the biggest challenge learning to run all these machines, negotiate these contracts, write proposals, design parts, all pales in comparison to the challenge of, of hiring people and being an effective leader. Totally. Yeah. Well, Keaton, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's just, it was humbling to be invited and. Yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. New Patreon thank yous. Thank you to Brad for joining the Patreon. You guys make this show possible. Let me send microphones and stuff to people like Keaton so you have good audio. Thank you all for listening, and I will be back next week.